This paid podcast is produced by Slate Studios in partnership with Teva Pharmaceuticals. I felt so, so weak. My mind was weak. I couldn't read. I could barely even follow a feature-length film. I couldn't enjoy anything. I had lost a physical kind of rigor. It was hard to even walk a great distance. At a certain point, um, I really thought that my goose was cooked. And so this fed uh, a kind of pessimism in the sense that this is stronger than me, because it's not only stronger than me, it's stronger than the doctors. It's stronger than my wonderful supportive family who is bearing with me through this uh, horrible time. I can very much sympathize with people who have that feeling in that sense that maybe they won't be able to persevere. or They're feeling like they're hanging on by their fingernails. It took a very, very long time for me to understand the possibility of what I was experiencing, that it could be depression. This is Life Effects, a new podcast from Slate Studios that's committed to changing the way we think and talk about depression. I'm your host, Nikki Weber-Allen, and in every episode, I'll be introducing you to people who know depression inside and out, both through professional and personal experiences. Oh, I'm one of them, by the way. I've been learning to live with depression for the last seven years, and I can tell you firsthand that the best way to understand the condition is to talk about it. So that's what we're going to do. Today, I'm lucky to be joined by Dr. John Rottenberg for an in-depth look at depression basics. John, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I am so excited to have you on because not only... Do you study depression as a professor of psychology, but you've also had personal experience with the condition. How and when did you first recognize that you were depressed? The process of recognizing that I was depressed took a long time, and it had to do with where I was in life. I had just graduated from Harvard University, and I was uh, studying American history, and in many ways, uh, things in my life were going well. I had just reconnected with my high school girlfriend, and I was starting work on a dissertation, and I found that I didn't feel well. I had a kind of malaise. I had pain on the left side of my body. I thought that I might have mononucleosis or the flu. That was the first thing that I noticed. You mentioned having physical pain. Is that something that's normal? Physical pain and psychological pain go together. They magnify one another. It isn't true of most people who have depression that they have uh, chest pain on the left side like I did. But it is more common in severe, more severe depression. Uh, That's maybe part of why I didn't uh, immediately think I have depression, right? I thought Mm -hmm. I have pain. Right. I have pain. And so what do you do when you have pain? You go to a medical doctor. That's what I did. And I they did all the laboratory tests that you would expect. I had x-ray. I had a CAT scan of my head, and everything came back normal. Great? Well, it wasn't so great because then I was left with the question of why I still felt pain and why I still felt so bad. That's a very powerful story. You told us you were pursuing a Ph.D. in U.S. history, but now you're a professor of psychology and mood disorders. How did that change happen? A few years into the Depression, uh, I realized that nothing would ever be the same in my life. 
no matter what happened, um, that was such a profound experience and such a strange experience. It, it, it challenged all of my ideas about, um, what, what life is and what feelings are and where they come from. And so I vowed that if I get through this, I need to understand it better, uh, that I could do something, uh, constructive with this terrible experience in in by doing that um, hopefully produce a, a more dialogue on the subject to try to bring depression out of the shadows um, both with my research and with my advocacy John what evidence do we have that it's a legitimate medical condition and not just a sign of personal weakness depression is a profound condition that affects the body it affects the mind it colors our thoughts there really is no aspect of human functioning that it doesn't touch. People uh, bear up under the symptoms for weeks, months, years, not telling their friends, not telling their employer, not even telling uh, their loved ones about what they're hiding inside. And depressed people feel so bad and are struggling so hard against the condition that they uh, might even think of hurting themselves and in tragic cases uh, may even uh, take their own life. It's hard to be patient with people who don't feel that it's a legitimate uh, problem or that uh, it's a sign of personal weakness. I think that's really an antiquated uh, view of depression. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Explain for me what is happening inside of the brain of somebody who is experiencing depression. Well, we don't know. We don't know everything that's going on inside the brain. We know for sure what people are reporting and what people are experiencing. And we have to assume that this has a, a physical registration in the body, in the uh, hormones, in, and in the brain, um, to, because the symptoms of depression themselves are quite profound. Uh-huh. And what are those symptoms? Well, the two main symptoms, the two cardinal symptoms of depression are a low mood, a sad blue mood, and a loss of interest and a loss of pleasure in things that you ordinarily enjoyed, like food, other people, sex, whatever might be reinforcing to you. And then in addition to those two symptoms, there are a number of other associated symptoms, such as uh, sleep disturbance, loss of appetite, difficulty concentrating, profound guilt, a sense that you are worthless as a person, suicidal thoughts or behaviors. And uh, there's different combinations of symptoms that you could have, but you would need to have a total of five in order to have a what's called a major depressive episode. So let's transition to your personal experience. How has depression affected your relationships? Was there much of a learning curve there? Mm, I think that um, that is one of the biggest and most problematic areas, the most challenging areas. People don't know. They don't know what to say. They don't know how to act. There isn't a script. Uh, and between the two sides, uh, there's often a lot of misunderstanding and uh, a lot of grief. And so I would say, yeah, there was a tremendous amount for me to learn uh, about how to better um, and more fairly make demands on other people and, and on their side to understand what's right, what's appropriate. But the first step is to be able to talk about depression openly and honestly. And that is actually a huge step 
a huge step for a lot of people where uh, depression is much easier um, when people conceal it and other people decide, oh, I don't want to talk about it either, so I'm happy. But it's an unstable situation where we have kind of a conspiracy of silence. Yeah, I, I can really relate to what you're saying because I personally know what it's like to struggle with depression and anxiety, and I hid it for years. And what I didn't know is that my nephew was also struggling with depression and anxiety. And at only 22 years old, he ended up dying from suicide. Mm. And I've often struggled with a sense of guilt because I wish I had opened up about my own experience with depression with him. You know, maybe things would have turned out differently. Maybe he would have still been here if I was able Mm -hmm. to just talk to him about it. So I agree. It's so important that we're honest and open about depression and anxiety in our relationships. It is a really important first step. And I can't hold myself up as some kind of perfect model. It wasn't until my daughter was in college that I told her the full extent of what had happened to me. It wasn't until I wrote a book about depression. She knew that I you know, had had some kind of problem, but she didn't know the full extent. And this was my daughter. Yeah. This was someone who I carried on my back uh, while I was depressed. And it was very easy for me once I got better to keep putting off that conversation it really was a discredit to her um, if I was scared of what she might say or what right. she might think. Right. And I kept putting it off, even though I was in a better place and I wasn't necessarily scared about depression returning. I was worried that I would worry her and that she would now walk on eggshells around me. She's a wonderful person and she was extremely understanding. And the conversation went really well and I felt regret that I hadn't talked to her earlier because she's an emotionally mature person and she could have handled it. John, let's change gears a bit. So we know depression is actually quite commonplace. The World Health Organization reports that depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Now, how do you know if you're actually experiencing depression versus you're just feeling sad? That's a great question because mood exists on a continuum from the ordinary blahs that are transient that might last for a few hours or maybe a day to absolutely crushing, debilitating, depressed mood that lasts for months, uh, in my case, uh, for years. And the question is, where on that continuum does a diagnosis begin? And you might say it's arbitrary uh, to uh, stick a dividing line between normal mood and abnormal mood, but we have to set uh, the bar somewhere. And so the diagnostic manual says you need to have a certain number of symptoms for at least two weeks continuously Mm. in order for you to um, have a diagnosis of depression. But it's often hard to draw a bright line between where normal mood variation ends and pathological mood uh, begins. Now, are there specific areas of the brain that are often affected? Well, you know, we know that the so-called limbic system is affected by depression. There's a lot of research um, showing uh, that the left side of the brain in your frontal cortex is somewhat less activated. Uh, But we have many more questions than we have answers as far as what... uh, are the physical causes of depression. We would love to know what are the causes, and presumably we'd be most interested in the factors that we can reverse. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I feel like we often hear about neurotransmitters. What are they? And how do they factor into the condition? Neurotransmitters are chemical messengers uh, that we have in our brain, and they enable neurons to talk to one another. And in fact, they're distributed into different neurotransmitter systems. And many of these neurotransmitters, despite the fact that this is neuroscience and very technical, are household names. So many people have heard of serotonin, for example, or dopamine. Uh, Those are two of the most studied neurotransmitters in depression. What about on a chemical level? Does a sad brain look like a depressed brain? There is no blood test. There is no biologically based test for depression. It is diagnosed by talking to a person. Perhaps with a very young person, you would need to speak to parents or teachers as well. But usually the person is the source. So if they report to you that they're experiencing these symptoms, then they have the condition. And uh, there could be associated laboratory findings, but those are not used to make the diagnosis. So why do you think there's still so much shame and stigma around depression? There's a lot of reasons because part of depression is feeling that you're worthless, feeling that you're no good. And so people are very inclined to hide when they have depression. Mm -hmm. In addition, the people around um, the depressed person don't really know how to act. Serious mental health problems make other people feel uncomfortable. It's just a fact. I would say the same thing for, for example, uh, schizophrenia. But depression, because it is so common, um, there is a big gap between how many people are struggling with it and how few people feel really supported and really understood. Yeah. A lot of people, I think, who live with depression also struggle with anxiety. So is there a relationship between depression and anxiety? There's a very strong relationship between depression and anxiety. People who have clinical depression typically have anxiety levels that are just as high as people who have diagnosed anxiety disorders. And very often, uh, anxiety precedes depression. We don't know all of the reasons for that, but what we do know for sure is that depression and anxiety uh, go together, and they're, they're kind of partners in crime, unfortunately, and the combination certainly makes it very hard for the person uh, struggling because anxiety is a state of activation and a feeling that bad things are going to happen. And depression is the state of dark pessimism and the feeling that it isn't worth trying uh, to make your situation better. Part of the problem is that there isn't a single template. There isn't, uh, there isn't uh, a guarantee that for you depression will last two weeks or three weeks or a month six months. And that uncertainty is, it's hard for most people. And it's a hard, especially if you're finding that you get better and that you get worse. And you often hear depression talked about as uh, like diabetes, but you can't do a, a blood test to say, oh, now depression is under control. Like you can for diabetes. All we have is you're beginning to be able to enjoy life or you aren't. Mm-hmm. Why do you think people tend to view mental health differently than physical health? One reason that uh, that's so is that it's so uh, easy to see the physical manifestations um, with many physical diseases. Someone has a broken leg, they have a cast to show for it, and you could go show the person the x-ray. And that is a proof. With mental health conditions, uh, there isn't that tangible 
um, proof that this is real, despite the fact that um, depression is every bit as serious, it's certainly more serious than a broken leg, unfortunately, because uh, it requires a little bit of imagination. Many people have not had uh, the experience of uh, significant depression. And so that creates kind of a gulf. Mental health conditions, I have to say, are they're often demonized. Mm -hmm. um, and that makes it worse as well. Mental health conditions really aren't given the kind of respect uh, that uh, they clearly deserve. You mentioned proof. There are a lot of misconceptions about depression. What are some of the most common ones? And can science help us disprove them? I mean, a lot of the um, misconceptions are in the social uh, dimension. So, for example, the idea that depression is a matter of will, use your willpower, you know, snap out of it. Uh, why don't you just smile? I mean, these are really things that people do say. And there's absolutely no evidence that uh, if, if you're struggling with depression, that if you just try to impose your will, you'll get out of it. Or if you just move your face into smile configuration, you'll get over it. And so the misconceptions that people have, unfortunately, are part of what leads to this lack of good dialogue and leads to this feeling of misunderstanding because hurtful, hurtful kinds of comments make the depressed person retreat even more and not want to talk about it. Since you began studying behavioral health, what have you learned that's really surprised you? That there's a segment of people who have depression only once in their life, don't have recurrences, people who go on to be happy, they go on to be productive, they go on really to flourish in any way that we may want to define that, and understanding um, what explains that. Uh, what are the factors that separate the people who are continuing to struggle uh, versus the people who are going on to flourish? But listeners may wonder, how the hell did he get any better? Um, well, now that you brought it up, though, I am curious. What was the process like towards getting better or feeling better or at least managing it? Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't really give a, give a happy talk version because it was excruciatingly slow. Um, it took a number of years and there wasn't a last day. It, it really does emphasize the way that uh, pathological, dangerous, scary moods bleed imperceptibly into normal, more functional uh, moods. And many things changed in my life. I did get married. I did start a family. Uh, I did change my career. I gradually was functioning again as a graduate student. And I was studying depression. That was very meaningful to me. I think my life had perhaps more purpose. I was in a different place. Instead of being on the East Coast, I was on the West Coast. Uh, I took up exercise. Uh, I was with my wife's family on the West Coast. So these things all, I think, work together gradually, help me get handholds and footholds on the depression. But the thing that maybe is disappointing to people uh, who want a happy ending was that there isn't a clear last day. In fact, I have had uh, periods where I thought that the depression might be returning these little, little echoes of that original experience, though never uh, with the full force of its intensity. And so it is an ongoing, uh, I wouldn't say battle, but I would say ongoing um, area 
uh, in my life to manage my mood and knowing that, of course, I still do have the vulnerability. Uh, most everyone has it. Yeah, I agree with you. It's the same for me. It's never been the same as that initial sort of bout with depression. I just try to do my best to live a healthy lifestyle. I meditate every morning. I try to eat as healthy as I can and sleep. Sleep is a huge one too. It really is a scary thing, the idea that it can come back at any moment. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would add, it, it kind of does also speak to misconceptions potentially about depression, uh, is that depression can make you into a better person. I struggled for a number of years and I felt like life wasn't worth living, that my life was garbage and wasn't worth living, and I certainly couldn't enjoy anything for a number of years. And I vowed during the depression that if I were to get better, that I would I would enjoy everything that there was to enjoy, that I would enjoy every conversation, that I would enjoy nature, that I would cherish my daughter. And in that sense, depression was an enormous wake-up call to me to try to seize what good time I have. And I can't say I live this every single day, but having had a crushing experience of depression has made me more aware that you need to find joy where you can, joy where it exists, because it could be taken away again. It's possible. And that can be a good reminder for people who might be kind of living on autopilot. I love it. What a perfect way to end the segment. Thank you, John. Sure. My pleasure. Life Effects is produced by Slate Studios and Teva Pharmaceuticals. The vice president of Slate Studios is Sharon Wong. The producer is Kalalia. The associate producer is Leah Campbell. The audio engineer is Ann Pope. The composer is L.D. Brown. The story editor is Ryan Caton. And special thanks to Teva's Life Effects team. This podcast is a joint production of the Slate Group and Teva Pharmaceuticals. Some of the individuals in this podcast have been paid for their contributions by the Slate Group on behalf of Teva. All content is strictly informational and should not be considered medical advice. This content is designed and approved for use in the United States only.